morning, everybody. Good morning. Y'all ready to learn a little bit? Yeah? That was a question. Anybody, y'all ready to learn a little bit? Yes. Cool. Great. Let's learn, okay? Let's learn some Torah. The Torah is dying to teach us a lot of things this morning. So God, I hope you use me as a mouthpiece to speak the truth of the Torah this morning as I understand it and as we can hear it. Parshat Bahar, which is this morning's weekly wisdom, found on page 738. 738 is a very, very short but potent chapter of the Torah. This morning's short but very potent chapter of Torah has, again, there, there are these partio, there are these portions in the book of Leviticus where you want to stop yourself and say, if the world was like this, it would be great. I mean, all of us could probably imagine all kinds of chapters in the Torah where we'd say, thank God the world is not like this chapter. Right? It's not as if the Torah itself from the beginning and to the end is, is walking in the rhythm of our current milieu, our current mores, our current understandings of reality, ethical and moral maps. But there are chapters like this one. Some of you might be wondering, okay, I'm not up on my Bible. How many people here are experts in the Bible, Torah, Book of Leviticus in particular? Anybody? You, okay, good. Good to have a couple of experts here. For those of you who are not, let me read to you a couple of things that might sound interesting to you, and you might think, okay, if I were on a stump speech in Iowa next week, I might want to say the country one day will look like this. How's this? In chapter 25, if you are, if you are, if you have a brother who is in dire straits, hold him. Hold him up. Be with him as you would be with any other citizen. Don't exact interest that might kill somebody. A interest is kind of like a bite. It's called neshech. Don't bite people when you loan them money. Because they've come to you to ask for money. Don't bite them with crazy interest rates. They've come to ask you for money. They need it. Maybe this wouldn't be your agenda, but for me, and for others, things like that would be, wow, I kind of want to live in a world like that. How about this one? Right? If your friend or your brother becomes destitute, right, and they have to sell themselves, as it were, into slavery, they become so destitute, so poor, you must figure out a plan for their exit from that slavery. How many people were moved this week when Robert E. Smith, who is the wealthiest black man in the country, stood up at Morehouse and gave the commencement speech and told 396 young men who thought that they would be saddled with debt for in slavery, debt for the next how many years, you're free. Debt free. Jubilee came early last week. What a remarkable moment. Can you imagine the goosebumps? They, they were, their jaws dropped. That kind of generosity, that kind of like, oh, I have enough. You're going to be saddled with debt for... There were young men who quit school halfway through because they thought, I'll never get out from under the debt. They gave up having the dream of a college education. The Torah was prescient in imagining how a society might support each other in moments of destitution. And here's 
a remarkable part of the, the Torah in the beginning of the book of, in the beginning of the Parsha. Go back to the beginning of chapter 25 on 738 again. The institution of Shemitah. Can everybody say that word? Shemitah. One more time. Shemitah. Not Shmata, but Shemitah. <laughs> say it again one more time. It... Listen, if I were sitting in a shul, I wouldn't want the rabbi to say either, go say something. I'm with you. Okay, that's why I get to do it. But Shemitah. 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 Shemitah means to go on strike. In, in modern Israel, if you were to go on a Shemitah, it means you're on strike. You don't work. Shemitah is the biblical institution that said every six years, we must stop working the fields in an agricultural agrarian society. Every sixth year, every seventh year, after six years of working, the seventh year was a Shabbat. Not a Shabbat in the week, but a Shabbat of the land. An annual, a year-long Shabbat. Which meant that all the lands weren't being worked. What would be the analog for us? The sabbatical, right? Right? Richard is on a sabbatical. Awesome. You're not working. Every seven, in the seventh year, we are to not work the lands. And then the Torah says something radical. The Jubilee year. How many people know what the Jubilee year is? Seven cycles of seven. And on the 50th year, it's a double sabbatical. So the 49th year is the, the lands are not worked. And then the 50th year, or sold, return to their original owners, and all the slaves go free. Wow. And that becomes, right, that becomes the phrase, proclaim liberty in the Lamb, is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. That phrase on the liberty bell, proclaim liberty in the land, in other words, a world without slavery. How ironic, of course, that the liberty bell, which was taken from a chapter of the Bible that said that there would be no slaves. Just think of that. What, liberty for whom? Interesting. But in the Torah here begins with a Shemitah, which says every seventh year the land has to be given a rest. And it's called Shabbat Ladonai. It's a rest for God. So I'm going to come in and teach you a little something that the rabbis are bothered by. If you look at the first verse, Vayidaber Adonai al Moshe Behar Sinai more. And here I need a little bit of energy from you. God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the children of Israel and tell them that when they come into the land that I am giving to them, let them institute the Shemitah cycle. And before we actually think into Shemitah, which of course has so many implications for environmental consciousness and awareness around how we treat nature, what it is that we are in relationship to, the most profound reading of Shabbat Ladonai, it is a Sabbath for God, is what? What is the most profound and maybe heretical reading of the phrase, it will be a Sabbath for God? Right? Who should it say it is a Sabbath for? The people. What does it mean, Sabbath Ladonai? The phrase, if you don't know Hebrew, Shabbat means Sabbath, Ladonai means for God. So it should say Shabbat, Period. Let it be a Shabbat. The phrase Ladonai leads Rashi to say, L'shem, for the name of, or the honor of God, because God commanded it. But what's the most radical reading of that phrase? Anybody over here want to venture a guess? You might not know what I mean by the most radical, but what might be something you might not often think is the meaning of, it is a Sabbath for God. God needs a rest. So take that one, who said that, Lori? 
He said, God needs a rest. But what is resting on the seventh year? What rests on the seventh year? Besides us working, but what gets a rest? The land. Can we put those two things together? That when it says it'll be a Shabbat for God, it means it'll be a Shabbat for the land which is God. Zohar says, the Shekhinah, the divine feminine or the presence of God that inheres in matter needs to rest. Let's really up that by asking another question that the rabbis ask. Why does the Torah begin this parsha of all of the parshiyot with telling us where these things were given? The Torah tells us that God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. When were the Jews at Mount Sinai? In the book of Leviticus? The Jews were standing at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, but at this moment we have not heard the mountain of Sinai mentioned for a number of parshiot. A long gap. We don't need to know that they're at Mount Sinai. This leads the rabbis to say, why does Shemitah, why do the agricultural laws have to be mentioned with a location? Why does Mount Sinai and Shemitah have to meet? What do you think? Rob. Uh, you know, it's so funny because Robin and Rob both had their hands up. So I said Rob and both started to speak at the same time. So Rob and then Robin, okay. So Rob just said something very beautiful. Did you guys hear this? So Rob said that the reason that the agricultural laws of Shemitah and Yovel Jubilee and seventh year resting, the reason that is mentioned with Mount Sinai is to tell us, everybody here knows that when you're on Mount Sinai, it's easy to see God. But when you're working the land and getting your fingernails full of soil and you're, you know, when you're knee deep in manure, you're not feeling God. So the need to bring those two together was what the Torah was saying here. Wow, we're going to get back to that. I, I think that that is mm, Robin. So it's not an abstract idea. It actually has a location. It has a place. It has a hit. Just like revelation happened in a place, but these laws also will happen in a particular place. And in a way, it's also actually actually that's the the reading of the traditional reading is the problem for them is one might think that these laws in chapter twenty five are all very human constructions, but they want to give it a divine origins. They say, oh, it's, it happened at Mount Sinai, just as all the small details, right? So there is a, a sense of Mount Sinai being a location for you, not about authority, but about 
it has a space and these things will actually have to be walked out in the world they operationalize okay great Liana So Liana is saying, if everybody didn't hear that, that just as Mount Sinai was a place where God intentionally decided, as it were, to bring revelation, so too we have to bring our own intentionality to transform a simple mountain into revelation. We must bring the same level of intention to a field or a job or like that. And so I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to go in here, and I'm going to come in for a landing in three minutes. But I have a co- two two more comments, and then we're going to come in for a landing. Yes. Dina. Harsinai is the beginning. Harsinai, Mount Sinai is the beginning. It's the beginning after the slavery rising up in consciousness. So we rose up from slavery and that's the pinnacle. It's the beginning of the Roman move, of the, of the high... Elevated, yeah. yeah. So I just want to come in for landing because it's like we're going to wind up deepening here and I want to bring it in. So the work of bringing Sinai to every moment of our lives is a never-ending journey. It isn't, it isn't unnatural to imagine that when you're standing underneath an Ofrof or you're standing underneath a Chuppah with your beloved it's very hard to imagine, because I've been there, that when you're underneath that beautiful talit with all the people surrounding you who are kissing and hugging and you're at an ecstatic place, that that place is no less holy than the three o'clock in the morning diaper changes that, Ty- that Timo and Lara are doing now. It's very hard. You kind of, most of us to some degree, if we had to choose where we'd like our revelations to happen. We prefer them in joyous celebratory moments and not in the manure of the carrot patch. It just doesn't feel like they're the same thing. We come to synagogue to find the holy. And as soon as we leave, something shifts. From the moment we started Ramamu and from the moment I got into the business of being a rabbi, it became abundantly clear to me that religion is both the answer to the question and the problem. Religion is both the answer to the question and the problem. That by making the holy have a time and a specific locus and focus, we run the risk of saying Shabbat happens between Friday night and Saturday night, but when Shabbat's over, the week starts. Great. Shul is between these times, and then we walk outside. And so the rabbis say, here's 
here's carrots, here's poor people, and here's Sinai. So that we might not bifurcate between the beginning and the end. Because if Sinai doesn't have Shemitah and Vichyamuch Achicha, then Sinai is not complete. If Sinai doesn't have expression in the day-to-day, in the mundane, in the quotidian, in the banal, if we think that religion, and someone can say, you know, he's religious, but he steals. Have you ever hear that phrase? They're religious, but they're not so great in business. My friend Rabbi Joseph Tulushkin said, we need to relearn our language. Then that person is not religious, but they're not religious. Somebody who says, oh, they keep Shabbat, but they're not, they're a bit of a gossiper. No, they're not religious. And someone who says, you know, I know somebody who's so menschy and holy, they never speak a bad word. Talking to Steve Weinstein yesterday about his mother, Sonia, who passed away, taking a little bit of of who she was, and, and and she said, in her whole life, she never said a bad word about someone else. And then he said, but she wasn't that religious. And I said, no, Steve, you got it wrong. Wow. Wow. It's this distinction that is a split, a schizoid split in the psyche of the religious terminology, in our worldview. And I'm not saying that you can just avoid all things religious and you're still religious, but like that they're not aiming at the same place, the same Sinai. If revelation was only to make us into card-carrying members of a set of rituals, a set of rituals and practices, but when it came to ethics and lifting up our brother who is destitute or being careful of the environment, we have it all wrong. The chuppah and the diapers, together. Right? The weak and the holy, together, not split. The word in Hebrew for secular, chol, is also the same word for sand. Right? The sand on the beach and the days of the week. And I heard a friend, uh, a colleague, Rabbi Ed Feinstein, say so beautifully, he said, you know, the difference between sand, chol, the thing about sand is that each little piece feels disparate, but when they come together, they're powerful. When we think of the week as distinguish each piece. We live in a world of fragments, but Shabbat is the day that unifies them. It brings all the six together, and that's why Shabbat is called the day of unity. And he says what happens when that happens is that we have glass. Sand that comes together and is purified becomes a reflection of the holy, becomes the place where we can see the holy reflected back to us. So this morning's Aliyah, taken directly from the question, what is Har Sinai, Mount Sinai have to do with all of these details of creating a just and moral society is just this, to braid together the holy and the profane, to make a commitment to hear the blessing that we might walk our talk daily, that we might enter into the sacred and profane with the level of intentionality that Ilyana brought us to, that we might imagine that when we're in the fields we might stop and say, this is also holy. Getting on this bus and how I talk to that bus driver is no more or less holy than standing in the Holy of Holies. 
And that's hard work because we'd rather compartmentalize. But we should all be religious. You heard it here today. Every one of you should be absolutely religious. If by religion you mean to be someone who is religare, someone who wants to ligament, ligament, re-ligamenting life, because we tear things apart. We should be making blessings when we say hello to the doorman in our building in the morning. We should be making blessings when we thank our cab drivers, when we thank our husband, wives, babies for bringing us into the mud, mud, mud of Shemitah. So I'd like to call forward for the first Aliyah those who are recognizing this kind of split in their individual lives, in their family, wherever it might be, and are seeking to bring Mount Sinai into the day-to-day. If that is something that speaks to you this morning and you feel called to come up to the Torah, please come forward. For the first Aliyah, you don't need another invitation, just please come and stand with Torah this morning.